Most people don't like bad news unless there is something wrong with you. Most people would rather focus on good things and positive things. Now it's understandable that we would rather hear about and read about and think about positive things in life, but some negative things are very important. For example, it's very important that you understand that you cannot start your vehicle in the garage and leave it running to warm up while the garage door is closed. If you do that for very long as you are seated in your vehicle, it will kill you or make you very ill. It's very important that you understand that you should not lick a frozen light pole in the winter, even if you are very curious. You will probably end up with a mangled tongue. You see, there are many issues in life that are very important to understand as a warning to us. The same thing applies in the spiritual realm. Most Christians prefer to read about and hear about spiritual truths regarding salvation and forgiveness and the Lord's grace and His mercy and His love. Those are glorious truths to contemplate, but we also need some warnings even though they aren't as pleasant to contemplate. In fact, because they aren't pleasant to contemplate, some Christians don't bother to read them or take them seriously. Maybe that's why the book of 2 Peter is largely ignored by many Christians. It, along with the book of Jude, has been called the dark corner of the New Testament. It is called that because, as we saw in the introductory message, it is a letter that is largely composed of warnings. Peter warned about the religious false teachers of his day, and the Holy Spirit preserved the letter in inspired Scripture as a continual warning for our benefit to this very day. Christians who ignore the letter do so to their own peril. The Christian world today is full of false teachers, just as was the case in Peter's day. Enterprising men and women have long known that it is possible to make a lot of money by claiming to be a minister of Christ and telling people what they want to hear. That is going on more today than ever before because there are more avenues for false teachers to disseminate their message. There is television. There is radio, the internet, magazines, books, conferences, seminars, etc. False teachers are using all of those avenues to spread their message and line their pockets. But the sad part about it is that many Christians don't see it. Many Christians refuse to believe that is going on. And when you warn them about it, they accuse you of being unloving and divisive. Such is the atmosphere of our day and age. That is why it is so important for us to study and understand and believe and contemplate Second Peter, which is our plan for the next several weeks and months. Let's turn together to Second Peter chapter 1 over near the end of the New Testament. It's maybe easier to find the book of Revelation and back up a few small letters to Second Peter chapter 1. Please follow along as I read verses 1 through 4, 
which form the opening greeting of Peter's second letter. Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be, be, may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The letter of Second Peter is a call to discernment. Tragically, discernment is a dirty word to some Christians. On the one hand, it is understandable why this would be the case, because some Christians who emphasize discernment are unloving, harsh, hypercritical, and they are spiritual headhunters, self-appointed spiritual headhunters. However, the fact that some Christians go overboard in the name of discernment doesn't excuse us to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Discernment is extremely vital, especially in our day. That is why Peter wrote this letter, and that is why it is so important. We would do well to digest its content. Notice how Peter begins. He says in verse 1, the opening verse of his letter, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even though the opening verse of this letter asserts that the Apostle Peter was the author, it probably won't surprise you to hear that many liberal scholars deny that claim. For a variety of reasons, they say that Peter was not the author of this letter. Now, I'm not going to take the time to bore you with all the technical arguments, because you can research those by consulting good, solid commentaries. I simply mention it so that you are aware of it. This letter claims to have been written by Peter, and both internal and external evidence support that assertion. The Apostle Peter wrote this letter, and he wrote it in accordance with or under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Who was Peter? Most Christians are somewhat familiar with this man. Peter was one of the first disciples chosen by the Lord, and he ended up becoming the leader of the twelve disciples. Jesus was their teacher, their Lord, their rabbi, their master, but Peter was the leader among his peers. This is seen by the word Matthew uses in chapter 10 of his gospel to describe Peter, and it is reinforced by the fact that every list of the apostles in the New Testament places Peter first. He had been a fisherman by trade, which had provided him a middle-class living, but Jesus eventually called him to leave his profitable fishing business to enter vocational ministry. Contrary to popular opinion, Peter wasn't ignorant or stupid. That is obvious by the content of his sermons recorded in the book of Acts and by the content of his two letters. Two letters. 
Also, it is very likely that he was trilingual, speaking Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. When he is referred to as an unlearned in the book of Acts, it just means that he did not attend the rabbinical or official schools of the religious leaders of Israel, but he wasn't stupid. Also contrary to popular opinion, Peter was married. He was not the first pope and unmarried. We know he was married because we are told in Matthew 8, 14 that Jesus healed his wife's mother and also because Paul mentions Peter's wife in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He was a young man when Jesus called him to follow, but by the time he wrote this letter, he was somewhere in his 60s, possibly early 70s. As you probably know, Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter in Greek or Cephas in Aramaic. Peter and Cephas are, are the same name. One is Greek, one is Aramaic. Both, the, both of those names mean stone or rock. So it was the Lord's way of telling Peter what he would eventually become as the Lord worked in his life. He would eventually become solid, strong, which is not how he was when he first began to follow the Lord. Here in verse 1, Peter refers to himself as a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. The first word is bondslave. There's a beautiful picture behind this word. It is found in Exodus 21. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. In this passage, God gave laws about how the children of Israel were to treat slaves. Listen to these words from Exodus 21. Verse 2 says, If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. That was a bond slave. A bond slave was someone who loved his master so much that he wanted to serve him forever out of love, not out of obligation, not out of requirement, but out of love. That is what Peter is referring to here in verse 1 when he calls himself a bond slave. Jesus Christ is Lord, which means master. That's the way Peter saw Jesus, as his sovereign, loving master. So Peter thought of himself as a bond slave. However, he also recognized that he had been given a great privilege. Because here in verse 1, he not only calls himself a bondservant or bondslave, but also an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle was one who was sent by authority with a commission. It was used in Peter's day to refer to the representatives of the emperor or the emissaries of the king. <clears throat> one of the requirements to be an apostle was to have seen the risen Christ personally, according to what Paul states in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 and 2. Peter met that requirement, obviously. He saw Jesus after the resurrection. He saw Jesus many times after the resurrection. In fact, Jesus personally met with Peter to recommission him back into ministry. Peter was so devastated by the fact 
that he had repeatedly denied his Lord on the night of all of those trials, that it seems from the glimpses in the Gospels that Peter was going to go back to his fishing business. He was done with vocational ministry. But Jesus met with Peter and restored Peter to his calling as an apostle. We find out in the book of Galatians that Peter was primarily an apostle to the Jewish people. Although he did have the privilege of taking the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 10 when he shared the gospel with Cornelius in his household. So in summary, he became what the Lord wanted him to become. He became a rock. He became solid. He became strong. He became a faithful servant and leader in the first century church. For example, in Acts chapter 2, he preached to the Jewish multitude on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 were converted, and he, along with the other apostles, baptized those converts there on the southern steps of the temple compound. In Acts chapter 3, he healed the lame man. In Acts chapter 4, he confronted the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. In Acts 5, he confronted Ananias and Sapphira for their hypocrisy. In Acts 8, he dealt with Simon the magician. In Acts 9, he raised Dorcas from the dead. In Acts 10, he took the gospel of the Gentiles. In Acts 11, he defended his action of taking the gospel of the Gentiles when he was called on the carpet by the Jewish believers. Peter became the leader Christ wanted him to be. So he wrote this letter as a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. We know from what he says in just a few verses that he wrote this letter near the end of his life because it wouldn't be very much later when he would be martyred just as Jesus had told him in John 21. Notice how he described his recipients of this letter here in verse 1. He says he, he wrote to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. That is a reminder that there are no second-class Christians. No such thing. We have all received the same faith, and the fact that we have received it emphasizes the point that it is a gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't merit it. We didn't acquire it on our own. Our faith is a gift of God's grace. And through faith... God imputes the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. That is why Peter adds the phrase at the end of the verse, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. The truths found in the opening verse of this letter are monumental and glorious truths. Peter has mentioned our precious faith, our standing in Christ, and our position of righteousness before God. Beloved, nothing is more valuable than those things. Nothing. And we haven't even gotten out of verse 1. Verse 2 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is somewhat of a traditional greeting, but it's obvious that Peter intends for this to be more than just a mere formality. He wishes or extends grace and peace to his readers. It's interesting to note that grace, charis is the Greek word, grace was the customary greeting in the Greek-speaking world, and peace was the customary greeting in the Hebrew-speaking world. Still today, Jewish people greet one another with the word shalom, which means peace. So Peter extends grace and peace to his readers 
But not just a little grace, not just a little peace. Notice he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter wanted his readers to experience grace and peace in abundance. You see, as believers in the Lord Jesus, we have received God's grace and peace in a unique way at salvation. God's grace was showered upon us in justification, and the result was that we obtained peace with God. But that's not what Peter is talking about here. He is not wanting to see his readers get saved. They were already saved. He is not wanting his readers to become Christians. They were already Christians. They were already believers. His desire was for them to experience God's grace and peace in an ongoing way. They already had peace with God, so he wanted them to experience the peace of God. They already knew God's saving grace, so he wanted them to experience sustaining grace and sanctifying grace. And he understood that the way they would experience those spiritual blessings, those spiritual realities, would be in a continually deepening relationship with the Lord. And that's why he adds the phrase here in verse 2, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. By the way, the word knowledge that Peter uses here is the intensified Greek word for knowledge. So the emphasis is on a thorough and intimate knowledge of God and Christ. Now once again, understand what Peter is talking about here. His readers already knew Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. So he's not asking that they would come to know Christ to become Christians. They already knew God as their Father. So Peter longed for them to deepen that relationship in a stronger and more intimate manner. Paul expressed this desire in his own life when in Philippians 3.10, he said that I may know him. Paul had come to know Christ 30 years prior to writing that statement. But he longed to know the Lord in a deeper way, a stronger way, a more intimate way, a more profound way. That's what Peter wanted for those to whom he wrote this letter. You see, beloved, being a Christian, and I know that many of you know this, but but it's important to emphasize that being a Christian is all about knowing the Lord. We come to know Him at salvation, and we grow in that relationship of knowing Him as the relationship deepens. In John 17, 3, Jesus said in His prayer to the Father, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In that monumental verse, Jesus gives us his description of salvation, his description of eternal life. That is the great New Testament definition of salvation, and it comes from the lips of Jesus himself. This is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The word know in that verse, K-N-O-W, means far more than just intellectual knowledge or mental assent. It's the same expression used to describe the sexual intimacy of a husband and wife. When Mary was told by the angel that she would give birth to Jesus, she said in Luke 1.34, How can this be since I do not know a man? In Matthew 1, 24 and 25, it says, Then Joseph took to him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. 
In both of those passages, the word know, K-N-O-W, is used to refer to intimacy. And that's the way the word is used by Jesus in John 17, 3. This is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know God, to know Jesus Christ, is not merely having intellectual knowledge of them. And it doesn't mean to know about them or know of them. In James 2.19, it says even the demons have that kind of faith. To know God and know Jesus means to have an intimate, personal, ongoing, dynamic relationship with them. Jesus made it clear in John 8.19 that you can be devoutly religious and still not know God. Eternal life is knowing God Knowing Jesus in an intimate, personal, ongoing, dynamic relationship. Eternal life comes from knowing the Father and knowing the Son. And it doesn't mean that we just know about them. It means we know them personally and intimately. That's genuine salvation. That is why Jesus described the final judgment the way he did in Matthew chapter 7. Go back with me to the very first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. These would have been shocking words for Jesus' audience to hear, and they're still shocking, even to this day. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus warned, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many. And that's what makes these verses so scary. Many, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. And now they begin to list all of their religious achievements, religious credentials. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And I'm sure many others could be added to that list. Lord, Lord, we were good church members. We went to church regularly. We were baptized. We partook of communion. Lord, Lord, look at all of these things. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I, here's the, here's the phrase, here's the concept, I never knew you. Depart from me. Tragically, there will be many on judgment day who will assume that they are going to be allowed into heaven because of their good deeds, because of their religious works, because of their religious ritual, because of their religious tradition. But Jesus will inform them that the real issue is a relationship with him. And those who don't have that relationship will hear, I never knew you. Depart from me. Obviously, Jesus knows who they are. He knows who everyone is. But this is his way of saying there was no relationship. We didn't know each other. It reinforces the point that Scripture describes salvation as knowing God, knowing Jesus Christ. Now back to our text in 2 Peter chapter 1. And by the way, Peter heard those words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Those words riveted into Peter's heart and soul, so it's no wonder that he often describes salvation as knowing God, 
knowing Jesus Christ. And that's what he does here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. So we come to know the Lord personally in salvation, in a salvation relationship, but that's not the end of knowing the Lord. As that relationship deepens, we experience more of His grace, more of His peace. That's what Peter is referring to here in verse 2. And because he wanted that so desperately for his readers, he explained to them the many glorious provisions of the Lord in our relationship with Him. He says in verse 3, As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Here, Peter begins to mention all that the Lord has provided for us in our relationship with Him. And just so you know, so I don't disappoint you, there's no way I can do justice to this verse in the next one. N- not a chance. Try as I might, I know that I will not be able to convey to you all the richness of what these two verses are saying. Here in verse 3, Peter tells us that the Lord's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then in verse 4, he says, we may become partakers of the divine nature. It is obvious that Peter is trying to communicate to us the sufficiency of what God has provided for us. Here in verse 3, he says, the Lord has given us everything we need for life and godliness. In this context, please understand what Peter is saying and what he is not saying. Peter is not claiming that our salvation gives us everything we need to live life. That would be pushing the verse beyond its intention. What I mean is, even as Christians, we still need air or we'll die. We still need food and water or we'll die. We still need clothing or we could die from exposure. But Peter is speaking of spiritual provisions. The Lord has given us everything we need to have eternal life and to live a life of godliness. That's what he's saying here. Therefore, if we are not living a life pleasing to the Lord, or if we aren't living a life of godliness, please understand, we cannot rightly claim that it's because we lack something. Now, I'm I'm stressing this point, beloved, because through the years, I have talked with Christians who have said things like this. Well, I tried to live that way, and they're talking about what Scripture describes, how a Christian should live. Well, I tried to live that way, but it just didn't work. And what they're implying is that it wasn't their fault. It wasn't because of something that they didn't do or, or, or whatever. What they're implying is that the standard was unattainable, And there was something lacking that they needed to be able to live the way God says we ought to live. These two verses deny that assertion. Completely deny that assertion. We lack nothing to be able to live a life of godliness. Don't insult God by saying, well, this is just the way I am and I can't change. Listen, if it's something wrong, you can change. You can change because God has given us 
everything we need to live a life of godliness. That doesn't mean it will be easy. That doesn't mean that it will be without struggle. That doesn't mean it will be without a battle. Throughout the New Testament, the Christian life is described as a war, a battle, a struggle. But it does, these verses are saying that the Lord has not withheld anything from us to be able to live a life of godliness. Let me say it another way. We cannot excuse our wrongs by saying, I just can't. The more accurate statement is, I just won't. We cannot excuse our wrongs by saying, it's not realistic for me. More accurately, I don't want it badly enough. We cannot excuse our wrongs by saying, that works for other people, but not for me. No, I just don't want it badly enough. This is just how the Lord has made me. This is what some people say. Well, the Lord just made me. I can't, there's nothing I can do about this. No, the Lord's divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What is the source of that power? Where do we find it? The next phrase says, through the knowledge of him who called us. And notice, once again, Peter takes us right back to our knowledge of Christ. But remember, it's not merely intellectual knowledge. We're not talking merely about facts, data, information. It's relational knowledge. Relational. Our relationship with the Lord grants us everything we need for life and godliness. And the stronger we grow in that relationship with the Lord, the more power to live a life of godliness. This relationship began when the Lord called us. That's what Peter says here. He says, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. This relationship began when the Lord called us. The call being referred to here in this verse is a reference to the efficacious salvation call of the gospel. In other words... This isn't referring to a general invitation that goes out to all of mankind. The Bible does talk about that kind of call. Whosoever will may come. But that isn't what is being referred to here. This is talking about the effectual call to salvation. For example, Romans 8.30 says, Whom he called, these he also justified. That is obviously an efficacious call Because it's all-inclusive. All those who are called in this sense are justified. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, Paul says there that God calls us into this fellowship, this relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. One other text, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14 says, We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brother and beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation, unto which He called you by our gospel to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Peter mentions being called here in verse 3, he is talking about the effectual work of God to call us into his family. God did this by his own glory and virtue, Peter reminds us at the end of this verse. 
In other words, he didn't do this because we are worthy. He didn't do this because we are deserving. He did this by his own glory and goodness, his own glory and excellence. And when he called us into his family, he gave us some amazing and phenomenal promises. So Peter mentions that in verse 4. He says, by which, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Time would fail us if I tried to list all the promises that are given to us in the gospel. It's no wonder that Peter simply says, exceedingly great and precious promises. There are promises of forgiveness, There are promises of grace. There are promises of eternal life. There are promises of heaven. There are promises of strength. There are promises of victory. There are promises of the resident Holy Spirit. We have been given precious and magnificent promises. And Peter says here in verse 4 that through these, through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean we can become God? Does he mean that we can become little gods? Obviously not, because that was the lie Satan used with Adam and Eve in the garden. You'll become, you'll become his God. You'll become another God. And this is the lie in many false religions, such as Mormonism, which teaches that one day we will become gods. No, Peter is saying God's work in our lives is such a transformation that we are radically changed in our being and in our nature. In our natural condition, we are sinners who are not interested in yielding to the true God. We're not interested in surrendering to the true God. But salvation changes us so thoroughly that 2 Corinthians 5.17 can say, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation Old things have passed away, and new things have come. The gospel promises a radical change in us. 1 John 3.9 says God's seed abides in us. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says the Holy Spirit resides within us. James 1.18 says we have been regenerated. Philippians 3.20 says we are citizens of heaven. 1 John 3, 1 through 3 says, We are children of God, and one day we will be like Christ when we are glorified. That is why Peter could say that we are partakers of the divine nature. When God saved us, he delivered us from the rottenness of this fallen world. Just as Peter says in the last phrase of this verse, having escaped the corruption, the rottenness that is in the world through lust. Our natural, evil, sinful desires are rotten. And they corrupt us. But we escape that garbage through the promises of the gospel. We are delivered from the power of the sin nature by the power of the gospel. So in that sense, in that sense, we are partakers of the divine nature. And our Lord's power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Beloved, to say we have been blessed as Christians would be a gross 
understatement. We, we can't even think of a way to say it strongly enough. We have the privilege of knowing God. We have the privilege of knowing Christ. We have divine power available to us. We have exceedingly great and precious promises. We have become partakers of the divine nature. We have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. All that and so much more is ours in Christ. All of that is for those who know him. So I, I have to ask you, I must ask you, do you know him? Please hear me. I am not asking you if you are religious. I'm not asking you if you attend church. You're here this morning. I'm not asking you if you're a church member. I am asking you, do you know him? Do you really know him? Not know about him, not know of him. Do you know him? If you know him, then all of this is yours. Divine power, magnificent promises, all that we've mentioned. If you do not know him and you die in that condition, when you stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, and you begin to list all the reasons why you think you should be allowed into heaven, he will say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me. I tell you, you don't want to die and stand before the Lord and hear those words. You don't. So I ask you once again, do you really know him? And if you don't know him, you must swallow your pride and don't say, yeah, but you know, so many people think I'm a Christian. I realize I'm not. I don't really know him. I'm just a religious person. Swallow your pride. Forget all of that. Don't let it hold you back. Humble yourself before God. Cry out to Jesus Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know you. God, I want to know you as my Father. I want a relationship with you. I don't want to stand before Jesus and hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Receive Jesus Christ by faith and come to know him. Let's bow together in closing. As we close our time together this morning, please, please think about where you really stand with Jesus Christ. I've asked already several times, I ask again, do you really know him? Do you know him as your own Lord and Savior? Don't die and stand before him to hear him say, I never knew you. If you do not know Jesus Christ, or if there's any doubt in your mind whatsoever, resolve the issue this moment, right where you are seated in the quietness of your heart. Humble yourself before God and say, God, I want to really know you. Lord Jesus, I want to really know you. Forgive me of my sin. Grant me the power to let go of whatever is holding me back so that I truly surrender and come to know you. And beloved, for those of you who do know Christ, and I know there are many here this morning, rejoice in what is ours in Christ. Divine power, exceedingly great and precious promises, partakers of the divine nature, escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, knowing the Father, knowing the Son, all of that 
and so much more is ours in Christ. And child of God, if you really are a child of God, don't insult God by saying, I just can't live the Christian life the way it's described and defined in the Bible. You can. You can. You have been given divine power. You have been granted everything you need for life and godliness. Don't say you can't. It may be a battle. It may be a struggle. But you can, if you will. And if you will depend on the Lord's grace, the Lord's strength, His power. Cry out to Him for that. But don't contradict Him by saying you just can't. Father, as we close our time together this morning and reflect upon this passage we have considered, what, what a powerful way for Peter to begin his second letter. It excites us for what we will learn in the days ahead and what we will see in this powerful little letter. But we don't want to simply muse on these truths. We want to absorb them. We want to embrace them. And so in closing this morning, Father, I pray for any, anyone who is here with us who doesn't really know you, who doesn't really know your son, Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit open their eyes, the eyes of their understanding. May they surrender to Christ this very day and come to really know him so they don't hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me. And Father, for those who do know you as Father and know your Son, Jesus Christ, may we rejoice and give thanks for all that you have given us in Christ. Thank you for the divine power available to us. Thank you that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Thank you that we can live the way you tell us to live in your word if we will, if we will draw on divine strength and call out to you, cry out to you. So, Father, however these truths need to be applied to our lives, may your Holy Spirit bring that home to us, and may we respond as we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.